0: The future ain't what it used to be. This is how, and the future is pretty freaking frightening when you consider the growing popularity of the far right in the United States. According to the Pew Research Center, political polarization has doubled, that's right, doubled in the last 30 years. If you are a millennial or older, you may remember political polarization being pretty damn high back in the... early 90s when Republicans were having fits about President Bill Clinton and Democrats, seeing Republicans as attempting to radically, radically change the United States of America. Of course, Clinton would go along with Republicans on all sorts of neoliberal legislation that even his fellow Democrats were opposing, like his support for NAFTA, which devastated jobs in the U.S. and the environmental in the environment throughout the region the telecommunications act of 1996 which handed radio over to corporations pushing a far-right libertarian agenda and we'll talk about that in a little bit and glass steagall which deregulated banks and played a role in causing what we now know as the great recession in fact even compared to the era of political antagonism To that era of political antagonism, political polarization today is still at an all-time high. On the far right, the polarization has taken the form of racist, misogynist, anti-Semitic, mostly bros who support actually endorse inequality, threaten violence, and regularly practice intimidation online and at public events, but only when they have a lot of their kind around them for support. So what is it like inside the far right, and what impact is that having on young, young Republicans today? We'll find out in a few when we speak with writer Amanda Moore, who posted the Nation article undercover with the new alt-right. For 11 months, I pretended to be a far-right extremist. I discovered a radical youth movement trying to infiltrate the Republican Party. After being found out as an undercover journalist, she followed up her previous writing with another piece of The Nation. The war within the Young Republican Party at the Young Republican National Convention, far right figures have few have, have have made few inroads, but they did read my nation investigation. Follow Amanda on Twitter or whatever Elon Musk is calling it nowadays at No Turtle Soup and then the number 17. Amanda, there's sixteen other people with that. Go figure. Amanda's writing and uh, research focuses on the far right and far right extremism, obviously. So, she posted this at her Twitter profile, and it's really great. According to far right, anti-Semitic, Holocaust-denying, white supremacist Nick Fuentes, Amanda is I don't know, some ugly chick, some racist going by at Yosemite Shane on Elon Musk's platform says Amanda is an anti fake news smear merchant. At Jackson Hinkle, another far-right anti-Semitic white supremacist who claims to be the most censored person on Twitter, despite both Fuentes' and Yosemite Shane's accounts being suspended, but Jackson Hinkle's is not, describes Amanda as a deranged stalker. And to the New York Young Republican Club, she's a... Known leftist troll, and all of those are badges of honor as far as I'm concerned. Producing today's show is Dan Kugler. Dan, how are you? How's your week going so far?
1: I'm doing good. Uh, you know, I got some sad news on Monday. Uh, the great uh, West Side bluesman, Tail Dragger, who was, you know, but one of the greatest showmen I've ever seen uh, passed away on Monday. The day... The feature film about him was set to premiere in uh, up in Waukegan. No, no kidding. Yeah, he's. Uh, I man, it, I thought
0: for a second there you were going to be all sad about Jimmy Buffett dying. I'm so no. glad it's not about <laughs> Jimmy Buffett dying.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I was like, I, when I saw that, I was like, uh, and he was dying from skin cancer, which was uh, <laughs> very ironic, right.
0: So, uh, <laughs> so enjoy the Florida Keys.
1: Yes, definitely.
0: But Tail Drager passed away, and this yeah. documentary was going to be premiering in Waukegan. Did it premiere? Or did they, uh, d-
1: it did. You know, I think it did go through. He wasn't obviously Absolutely. there, but uh, he was there in spirit. Yes, uh, one of the most life-affirming things I ever saw was on his birthday. Tail Drager would uh, cook goat, and he would do these shows on the West Side with his goat, and he's performing and. Uh, <laughs> Actually, there was a someone shot into the bar at his wife. That it was some sort of lovers' quarrel, and uh, and at a show co- you were at, yeah, and, <laughs> and cops came and kind of the place sort of cleared out a little bit. And I asked Tail Dragger, like, is the show over? You know, and he was like, Hell no, we gonna play some blues, <laughs> and it, he like got the room crowd going again it was like awesome so <laughs> he was a really uh, spirit uh sir, definitely a, a unique spirit so I, I encourage people to check out his work on uh youtube there's some great videos of him tail dragger
0: also uh shadowing shadowing dan Kugler is nick man today nick how are you doing
2: i'm doing good i uh, recently got a Criterion channel subscription and watched 12 Angry Men. Oh, did you? Yes. And then me and my friend also then watched 12 Angry Women, also known as The Housewives
1: uh TV series.
0: <laughs> those are both two, 12 angry men and 12 angry uh, women. Uh, so last week at this time, I was afraid that my late June hernia surgery was failing and that I would have to go under the knife again for the seventh time in a year and a half. However, I did admit that my fear might be nothing more than paranoia mixed with hypochondria, an understandable fear of something else going wrong with me considering the number of operations i would had since March of 2022. But all those fears went away this weekend. When I broke my pinky toe, so my free advice to every paranoid hypochondriac like me out there, whatever disease, ailment, or injury you are afraid is happening to you, I strongly, strongly suggest breaking your baby toe because the pain really takes your mind off of whatever physical nightmare you are dreaming up. But more important than breaking a bone to get your mind off of what you imagine are your other problems dan please remind us what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience
1: this week's question from hell is What will you miss most about Western civilization?
0: The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Elle gets their choice of This Is Hell merchandise. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com. You can also pick up some This Is Hell merch, including our new stuff which we revealed at last month's This Is Hell 27th anniversary party by dropping by during tonight's office hours, our weekly meet and greet that's really a drink and think, which happens every Wednesday evening beginning at 6 at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, C-A-R-Y-S in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, located at 2251 West Devon Avenue. Uh you if you hang out tonight, you can still check out the This Is Art Art Show, the ongoing art show up here in the second story studios gallery. By the way, the closing party for This Is Art is happening on Saturday, September 30th, so put that in your calendar now, as the closing of This Is Art is always a rager. So tonight, Wednesday night, and every Wednesday night, This Is Hell office hours. This Is Art is still open with regular Sunday gallery hours from, I believe, 1 to 5 in the afternoon, and on Saturday, September 30th, This Is Art is having its closing party. Again, you can leave your answer to this week's question mail on our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can post it on our Patreon page. You can post it on Discord, or you can just email it to radio at gmail.com, but we must have your answer by the end of today's show, when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. Dan, what's Jeff doing during this week's Moment of Truth? Jeff is flying the dog-whistling skies. Coming up, undercover among the far right, we'll tell you what's happening on Thursday's bonus podcast on Patreon for subscribers at patreon.com slash how and following this week's moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin, we will be announcing the winner of this week's question from hell. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. If you are like me, you're probably kind of freaked out by the far right, but that's likely because you do not know who, anyone who participates enthusiastically within the movement. Someone who tries to impress uh, through offending others. Someone whose politics are basically nothing more than the strategy of hate. Luckily, today we can clear up any misconceptions we may have, any gaps in our understanding of today's far-right reactionaries, because uh, our guests infiltrated their ranks undercover as a journalist. Here to tell us what she learned about the far-right and what we can learn about the far-right from her writer, Amanda Moore, posted the Nation article undercover with the new alt-right, and she followed that article up with The War Within the Young Republican Party. Follow Amanda on Twitter at no turtle soup 17 welcome to this is hell amanda
3: hey thanks for having me
0: your profile at your twitter account is spectacular I wish I could get that kind <laughs> of hate directed towards me, and I'll be asking you about that in a little bit. So you write about going to a Proud Boys riot with a neo-Nazi is not something I ever expected to do. And before we even go any further on that, I just want to talk about the uh, recent Proud Boys leader, Enrique uh, what's Tarrio, who got a record 22 years before uh, uh, sentencing for uh, his actions on January 6th. Uh, reports state that he begged for mercy. That he thought that January sixth was an embarrassment for the United States. This is what he was telling the judge. This is what he's telling the court. He seems to be stepping back from all of his bravado that he was, you know, uh, saying on a repeated basis leading up to January sixth. Is this exactly what you would expect from somebody who is a proud boy leader? That they would step back from everything that they were claiming they believed in, and that all those beliefs maybe. They didn't really hold those beliefs.
3: Well, my understanding is that he's actually supposed to go on Alex Jones's show today. Oh my God! <laughs> that might be not true anymore, but it was the case like literally three days ago. So um, I'm not I'm not sure I really believe his crocodile tears. Though I would also cry if I was going to a federal prison for 22 years. So that's relatable, at least.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that part's believable. <laughs> Also, could you please not plug Alex Jones' show on our show?
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Please don't listen to the yeah. show, but you just know it's happening out there.
0: <laughs> so, but you're right that in August 2021, I found myself driving through downtown Portland, Oregon, with an avowed white supremacist who we'll be talking about throughout this conversation named Alex Nelson. We were on our way to the abandoned Kmart parking lot that the Proud Boys had commandeered for their Summer of Love rally. The event marked the one year anniversary of a back the blue. Demonstration that had become a brawl between the uh, Proud Boys and militias on one side and anti-fascist counter-protesters on the other. Now, I was vaguely aware of all this antagonism happening in the North and Pacific Northwest, and specifically in Portland, Oregon, because people have been on the show in the past were from Portland, and they would share their you know uh, reports about what was taking place. These protesters and counter-protesters they got a lot of coverage in local media in the Pacific Northwest, but it got relatively little coverage in the national news or. In local media outlets elsewhere. For those who are not aware and live where these kinds of confrontations are not taking place, how would you describe the on the ground frontline confrontations dating back to, I think, the earliest report I saw was back in 2015? Why Portland?
3: Yeah, it just seems that that area is a real um, a hotbed for for far right uh, white nationalism for some reason. Um, a lot of the people that I met were connected to the Pacific Northwest, whether you know maybe they weren't from there, but people that were in their circles, a lot of them came from the Pacific Northwest. And you know, I'm not an expert in that area, so I don't really know what's driving it. Um, it That's actually. The time I went to Portland for that riot, it was my only 24 hours ever in Portland. Um, but it is, it's unbelievable, the footage that was coming out of there in 2020. Um, I saw a lot of it from Robert Evans' Twitter account. is <laughs> really where I got my my coverage of it, which is unbelievable. Um, you know, just all of these people getting tear gas constantly. And you're right, it didn't really make national news for some reason.
0: Well, what do you, I mean, I don't want you to speculate, but what do you think that reasoning is? Do you think it's just because it is a local story? Do you think it's because the media is intimidated? Do you think it's because, as you point out, they were barred from these events?
3: I think that the reason, I mean, it's the media is very coastline focused. Um, and it's just, you know, you don't really think about Oregon. <laughs> and I think that has probably got a lot to do with it Um just people cover cover what they know and national media is not headquartered out there and I think that's a lot of it.
0: You write that I had been undercover with the far right for nine months motivated by my belief that the fascist threat to the country was misunderstood by much of the press and far more dangerous than what was being reported. So is the press not covering these events again? What does the far right do to bar the press from their events? Because I would assume That would mean intimidation, assault, battery, and violence, which are not protected by the law, and therefore law enforcement would protect the freedom of the press and ensure they could cover their events and would not be barred as doing so would be unconstitutional and a crime. So how do they bar the press, and why is this tolerated by local law enforcement?
3: Well, these are kind of two different things. So when I wrote that, I wasn't really talking about um riots or 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 on the ground protests, right? I was talking about private ticketed events. So when I was at, you know, some of these events that I would pay, you know, in some cases, thousands, well, not thousands, up to a thousand dollars to get into. I mean, I watched I watched press get kicked out. I watched people who were speculated to perhaps be press get kicked out. Uh for some reason nobody ever thought it might be me. <clears throat> um but as far as, like, the riots go or, you know, protests, I think why that doesn't get covered, it's because there's a lack of interest on either the editors' end or the journalists' themselves' end. And there's also an element of danger. When I was at January 6th, I saw somebody uh, walking in as I was leaving. She was, like, walking onto, like, the grounds. the cap- Not into the building, but just to the Capitol grounds. And she was in head-to-toe black and uh, bulletproof vest helmet, whole nine yards. And at this point, you know, it's it's a it's a riot. And she's got press, you know, written down her her arm and everybody around me is hissing, oh, that's Antifa, that's Antifa. So you've also got stuff like that where it's just dangerous. I mean, she was a woman alone. <laughs> um, it's it's dangerous to do it. Um, I wouldn't have wanted to be visibly pressed on January 6th. And I wouldn't have wanted to be visibly pressed at really any of the protests that I went to. Um, but the private events, they can just tell you to get out and refund your money.
0: You describe how while cruising Portland prior to the protest and counter-protest with Alex Nelson, he tells you that people who go to that parking lot, they're highly violent, unhinged, very angry older Gen X or boomers, you can't just show up, they have to know you, and they don't know anyone under the age of 35. So, Boomers to Gen X covers anyone from being born from 1945 to 1980, meaning they're anywhere from their mid-40s to their late 70s. And they don't know anyone under 35. In 1964, the, during the height of the Berkeley Free Speech Movement, an activist by the name of Jack Weinberg said offhandedly during an interview, never trust anyone over 30. That quote would make it into the San Francisco Chronicle, and it was suddenly being cited seemingly everywhere in the media. Is the current more violent far-right movement dominated either in numbers or with power by parents and grandparents and if so what does that reveal to you about the movement and especially its more violent supporters what does it reveal when instead of not trusting anyone over 30 they don't want to trust anyone under 35
3: yeah you know it's really interesting um and, and nelson was a very interesting person to know um, his whole thing was that they he, he called them outdoor people. Uh, he said those are the outdoor people. They are supposed to sacrifice their bones and bodies for us. because of course, you know, the Proud boys, I mean are not that's their whole thing. We're wh- not white nationalists is what they say um, because they have kind of a diverse membership. Um, and so he didn't view them as as equals to us, people who were, you know, pro-Anglo he viewed them as people who were supposed to do our dirty work and um I think that is kind of like the dividing line because obviously you know this is also a little bit of self-selection bias because I like I have like no desire to uh (laughs) infiltrate a militia group um but Everyone I hung out with, you know, I I don't think that they are really the violent types. They are the people who would find others to do the violence for them if that was what they wanted to have done. Um, So, yeah, I did, in my experience, a lot of the people that I met militias at various events I went to were older than 35, for sure. I mean, like Atario, he's 39. Um, Stuart Rose is older than that, though I don't quite know his age. Uh, So, yeah, I think there kind of was this divide. Um, And that's not to say that the younger people can't be violent, of course they're there, but it does seem to be dominated by, by older people.
0: And you explain how during your undercover work, you attended more than a dozen extremist and conspiracy events and went to ostensibly mainstream Republican conferences, including the Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, the annual gathering of Republican activists, uh, politicians, and hopefuls, and Turning Point USA Student Action Summit, and witnessed a radical youth movement trying to take over the Republican Party. And you write that like a parasitic pilot fish, which is beautiful writing, a robust fascist community follows the big Republican events into every town. They host shadow parties, receptions, and speeches as they work to recruit new members. The conservative establishment benefits from their presence of these farther right gatherings. The extremists are often younger, well-dressed, and social media savvy. So far, this seems like a sustainable relationship that has at least up until the 2020 and 2022 elections benefited the Republican Party. Is the far right benefiting the conservative establishment? Is this process of other extremists being intermediaries between white nationalists and normie conservatives sustainable? Can this relationship, considering the differences in viewpoints and the extreme nature of the far right, do you think this relationship can continue or do you think it might be at this point, considering the 2020 and 22 elections, it might be faltering or is it strengthening?
3: I think it's strengthening. I, I think the dynamic of what CPAC and Turning Point USA are has, has shifted um, pretty considerably. And I, I mean, but I, I think there's you know, evidence of the success that these people have had. If you look at what is said on stage this year at CPAC about trans people, it's the kind of stuff that Christopher Cantwell, the crying neo-Nazi from Unite you know, the Right in Charlottesville, it's the kind of stuff that he was saying on his little podcast and he was shunned from society for it and now it's just a uh, mainstream rhetoric uh and so yeah i think that they have i mean nick fuentes is constantly on telegram he's always posting whenever charlie kirk says something that he agrees with he's always saying like look how successful we have been in infiltrating this movement and you know there are things that can be done my background is live events so CPAC this year was back in the DC area. It's in National Harbor, Maryland. I call it a campus. It's like a campus. There's a convention center, and then there's a couple of uh, mediocre restaurants, and then some hotels. And it's really like, you know, your company says you're going to you're going to DC for a conference, but really you're going to this little camp, little island, and there's nothing there. Um, and and in events, typically, if you're hosting a conference you can sign contracts so that unauthorized events cannot happen within a certain radius it's usually done through um, the the city itself will have an events division or something like that and you know it seems reasonable to me that if cpac didn't want nick fuentes hosting his little Joe hitler rallies literally directly across the street from cpac they could do something about that. They could do something about that with the hotel itself. And, you know, this year I did try to get in contact with Marriott and I did try to get in contract with a uh, national harbors events department. And, you know, nobody cared. <laughs> nobody got back to me. Everybody, I guess, was fine with the, uh, the pro Hitler rally happening across the street from CPAC. Um, and so, you know, that says to me that that complete lack of resistance shows me that, yeah, they are benefiting, you know, it is, it is good for them. And This year at CPAC, I was there as as actual press. Of course, now people know who I am. Um, And I had a group of guys dressed in cosplay, like Nazis, circle me and call me a slut for like five or ten minutes. And I, I mean, like, first, they're literally dressed like Nazis and nobody's kicking them out. And then their live stream afterwards where they talked about how successful they were at CPAC. Um, they mentioned, you know, we are younger than everybody else here, and the older people are so happy to see us because they're happy for the youth movement. And so, yeah, I think it really is benefiting the, uh, the mainstream events.
0: You mentioned the remarks about trans people at CPAC. Back in June, we spoke with anthropologist Alex Hinton, who wrote the Sapiens article, Two Myths Fueling the Conservative Rights' Dangerous Transphobia, with the subheadline An Anthropologist Attends the CPAC. Ground zero for the current onslaught of anti-trans rhetoric and legislation in the U.S. Those two myths, as Alex saw them, are that gender is natural, so trans people are unnatural, and trans people are dangerous. Does what Alex saw at CPAC, myths and that mark trans people as threats, reflect the influence? Do you think that reflects the influence of the far right? Or, hey, by watching... Fox News is that mainstream Republican Party conservatism is stoking fear and claiming dangers and worrying about threats a sign of the mainstream GOP or is it a sign of the far right's influence on the mainstream GOP?
3: Yeah, I think it really it stems from from the far right's influence. I mean that that rhetoric I can remember it being like fairly standard fare on. You know, shows that were completely deplatformed after after Unite the Right. I mean, the deplatforming that happened after Unite the Right, I think, is unmatched until January 6th, right? Like, you had full websites coming down that couldn't find anybody, you know, to to be willing to host their content anymore. And the trans rhetoric was was very similar. And and I think too, I also want to like caveat this and say I. As you've mentioned, I was just at the Young Republican National Convention a couple weeks ago, and and I have a pretty positive relationship with Republicans who either, you know, are not fascists or who have personal issues with the people that I write about. Um, And so I think they kind of sometimes view me as like a a metric of like liberalism, and they'll ask me questions. And recently I've had more and more people ask me, you know, this is what we're hearing on our end about trans people and what the left believes. And that just seems like maybe it's not what you guys really believe. And I don't know why we're focusing on this so much. Can you explain to me, um, you know, like kind of what the positions are and what do you think about trans people? And it's never like, I mean, these are people who are not doing this. It's like, I gotcha. Um, I think it's people who probably don't really have many friends who are on the left and just are a little baffled about why so much time is being dedicated to hating trans people, um, and so you know, I think, I think it, it's being pushed, but I think it's being done, you know, not just at the expense of elections, but kind of at the expense of uh, people within the movement itself. Um, it is, it is kind of alienating people. But I think uh, just this constant hatred.
0: Do you think deplatforming is effective in reigning in the far right?
3: I think deplatforming is great. Um, I think that deplatforming people and washing your hands and say, oh, we did it, pat them back, we're done. I think that's terrible and stupid. And unfortunately, when we deplatform people, it tends to be kind of, you know, the end. Um, and you really need to address the the root issues, and you need to uh, do more than just just deplatforming people. But yeah, I think it's a wonderful first step.
0: You also mention the New York Young Republican Club, and you write that at just 29 years old, Gavin Wax, W-A-X, is the president of the New York Young Republican Club, and he has already been working for years to push the Republican Party to the right and encourage those on the far right to enter mainstream GOP organizations. In 2016, Wax was the editor of Liberty Conservative, an online libertarian magazine, alongside a palatable pieces on libertarian candidates and policy. Wax published racist work by the white nationalist James Alsup, A-L-L-S-U-P. What is the relationship between libertarianism and the far right? Is libertarianism, and I don't mean this as a goofy, just a joke, is libertarianism a a gateway drug to fascism? Why does libertarianism make one seemingly susceptible, vulnerable to becoming a neo-Nazi?
3: Yeah, it's really interesting. So I was a libertarian for for many years. And when Black Lives Matter first started happening in 2014, uh, that was kind of when I felt alienated from the party. And I also thought, hey, you know, there are Nazis in our, in our party. And, and there's this weird phenomenon on the the right, with libertarianism, and obviously, like the Republican Party, where, oh, no, you can't say someone's a Nazi, we're not leftist, you can't just Arbitrarily throw that term around. It's like no, he's like literally praising Hitler. That guy's actually a Nazi. Like literally, <laughs> um, I don't think this is good. And and it kind of got to the point where um, you know people were afraid to say anything. I guess there social repercussions. I mean, I had to leave the party completely, um, and, and just let these people kind of take over. And what's interesting about Wax is that in the time since I was undercover, I've uh, been in contact with people from his past. And I was given all of the private chats for Liberty Conservative among their contributors. And they discuss uh, if this is, you know, sometime between 2014 and 2017, they're discussing their planned takeover of the Libertarian Party. And, and a lot of the discussion is should we take over the Libertarian Party or should we take over the GOP? And you know, the argument for the Libertarian Party is that it's much easier. It's more fractured, you have more like cranks in it. You have people who are you know libertarians because they're they're fascists and that's like the closest home that they could find and so it's it's an easier movement to kind of penetrate um so yeah i don't know i mean obviously like a lot of people come out of the libertarian movement they're left libert and there are left libertarians um and they don't become fascists so i i think it's some combination of some of the types of people that are interested in the movement and then also I mean, the party just, it was and continues to be very weak. Um, and when you have low numbers, you also want numbers. I mean, it's also an enterprise. It's a business. It's, you know, people pay dues. They are financially invested. If you have to remove the entire Libertarian Party of New Hampshire, you have to decharter them. I mean, presumably you're going to be losing funding. Um, and I guess that's, that's a bummer. I don't know if it's more or less of a bummer than Watching the party tweet out the 14 words, but who can say?
0: <laughs> you write that shortly after joining the uh, Talking Points USA program, Gavin Wax appeared on a far right podcast called Killstream during the now deleted interview, the host, Ethan Ralph. Uh, Brought up Wax's ambassadorship With talking, uh, with Turning Point uh, Something that would typically be mocked by The Killstream audience for being too mainstream You then quote Wax acknowledging I'm definitely kind of on the edge of where They stand ideologically My view is that we should use their Institution, we can In any way we can to our benefit If you have to shift the Overton window Shift it to the right, take it over from The inside, if they're going to elevate My message and my platform, then we're All square in in my book. So the far right, or at least in the point in this point of Gavin Wax, uh, seems very interested in electoral politics and taking over from the inside. Is there anything similar on the left in the U.S.? After all, Republicans claim there are actual <laughs> Marxists in the Democratic Party and the Biden administration pursues Marxist yeah. policies, right? So are the, are the Dems being similarly infiltrated by the left? And more importantly, can the left learn something from the far right?
3: Yeah, I mean, I wish that this was happening for the Democrats on the left. Uh, unfortunately, it's not. Um, Yeah, I mean, when you think that Joe Biden is a Marxist, it's, you know, I guess everything feels like an infiltration. Um, Yeah, I I just, I don't see this happening at all. I mean, I'm a member of the DSA, and uh, we are, we are not, we are not infiltrating the uh, Democrat Party. Um, You know, and it's, I think, too, there's various approaches to to this kind of takeover. Like I said, it's self-selection bias, because if I was going to be a fascist, I would be the kind of fascist who wants to take it over from the inside, because, again, I'm not really interested in a street fight. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I just, I, I don't know, there's really no comparison on the left that I can think of. Um, and just like there's no left version of Nick Fuentes and the people who are on the left, who, who, who would be a version on the left of Nick Quintez, who claim to be on the left, I'm not, you know, they're not really, like, leftists anyway. Um, so, yeah, it's unique to the right.
0: Do you think the Democratic Party is less vulnerable, less susceptible to the far left than the Republican Party is to the far right? And if so, what does that say about the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, for that matter?
3: Yeah, I think so because the Democratic Party is constantly uh, ceding ground to the right. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, they're less vulnerable because they are less vulnerable to they are less likely to take a principled stand on anything. <laughs> um, you know, I I don't think it's that they are you know opposed to infiltration. I don't think there's like some magic shield to it. It's just that they are constantly giving things up to the right over and over um, and and the right knows that and could take advantage of it.
0: So uh, you write the strategy where young far-right activists appear just reasonable enough to be let in the door and once inside the establishment recruiting people to the movement. Uh, Wax's former colleague James Alsup did this well. After Alsup became a Republican precinct committee officer in Washington State one neo-Nazi said on a podcast we can't all be Andrew Anglin, the founder of the neo-Nazi outlet, The Daily Stormer, but 10,000 of us can be James Alsop. Is there any way we as voters, whether we're Republican or Democrat, we can know how successful neo-Nazis have been at taking over local GOP precinct committees across the United States? Is there any way that we can know that if neo-Nazis are taking over precinct committees?
3: It's so, so hard to do. I mean, because you really, like, have to be following at a local level. I mean, you need, like, you can, it can probably monitor where you live yourself pretty easily, but one of the guys that I knew when I was undercover was um, the GOP, you know, committee chair in, in Michigan's 11th congressional district, and, like, I would never have known that if I hadn't personally met him. Why, how could I possibly have known that? Um, but of course, people who are in that district know it, and so it would require. I mean, if you wanted to do like a know nationally what's going on, it would require a lot of communication, um, <laughs> a lot of either local journalists or people who are you know uh, monitoring it on their own free time, um, because it's also confusing. You know, every state has different rules, every county, every every place is different, um, and and we don't on the left really have a organized um, attack plan for this so we don't even have like the baseline of information that I think kind of like the right has when they are like oh you. these are the steps you know there's like guides like this is exactly what you need to do where you live to to run for office Um, and so that kind of gives them the upper hand just in preparedness
0: this gentleman This person that you talked to from Michigan uh, You quote him saying "Uh, Trump has really changed things in Michigan Like all the hardcore Trump people Are now in positions of power I'm the district chair The leader of the Republican uh, Trump Republicans The co-chair of the party We're really seizing that power over the GOP Again, this is in Michigan In fact, a week ago The New York Times ran a front page story With the headline How Trump's election lies Left the Michigan GOP broken and battered The Times reports that within the uh, Michigan GOP, suspicion and infighting have been running high. A recent state committee meeting led to a fist fight, a special uh, in, uh, spinal injury, and a pair of shattered dentures. This turmoil is one measure of the way Donald J. Trump's lies about the 2020 ele- election have rippled through his party. Mr. Trump's election lies spread like a wildfire in Michigan, breaking the state party into ardent believers and pragma- pragmatists uh, wanting to move on. Bitter disputes, power struggles, and contentious primaries followed, leaving the Michigan Republican Party a husk of itself. Did you see any signs of that divide within the conference itself or the parties and fundrais- fundraisers around them? Did those groups mix or did they segregate?
3: Well, that's the thing, is that people are willing to tolerate each other until they're not. <laughs> and also, this is a, a movement that is running on on rage, right? So it's constant paranoia. It's constant anger. People are on edge, I and mean, then there's also interpersonal stuff. You know, people uh, maybe sleeping around. I, uh, you know, things like that, and it it creates all of this tension. Um, and so, yeah, when when people have these huge dramatic fights, it's not super surprising um, if you spend all of your time wondering, you know. I, is, is is someone around me a Fed? Is somebody around me a journalist? Uh, you know, yeah, it's going to make you a little uh, a little bit on edge. Um, and I think uh, you know, all of the lies that Trump has spread, uh, you kind of, people have to choose their own adventure on what they want to believe or don't want to believe. Uh, you know, it's got to be pretty frustrating for people who were at January 6th who supported the insurrection to also have to say oh, it was a uh, peaceful day of... <laughs> a prayer fest or whatever. Um, And it's gotta be kind of demoralizing, I think too, if you were at the Capitol and then everybody says, oh, it was an Antifa, you know, hit job." And I say this specifically because uh, Shane Trejo, who was the district chair, I mean, we talked about this, how how it kind of was uh, kind of a bummer (laughs) to hear a bunch of people say, you know, the thing that he was at was FBI uh, and Antifa. Um, and so, yeah, I think it just creates a bunch of infighting, and they can't they can't keep it together for very long.
0: And uh, Shane Trejo, the Michigan news site mlive.com, reported last week that quote in the hopes of benefiting 16 individuals charged for allegedly trying to nullify Michigan's 2020 presidential election, conservatives are turning to an unorthodox method of fundraising, a telethon. They then quote Trejo saying the Michigan Conservative Coalition formed the idea of the telephone to raise money for the 16 electors who are being pers- prosecuted, we believe maliciously, by Attorney General Dana Nessel for uh, uh, ex- exercising their conscience and uh, opposing voter fraud in 2020. They then identify Trejo as director of the Grand New Party, which MLive.com describes as Uh, Comprising a cohort of Michigan Republicans who feel the current party is not conservative enough flyers advertising the event claim a host of special guests will be appearing throughout the program including 2022 Arizona gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake and Steve Bannon. So how much influence has Trump had? Has he already built a legacy of pushing the Republican Party toward at least a legitimization of the far right within their ranks? Is Trump proving not to be an anomaly, but a lingering influence on the reach of the uh, far right within the the party? How much can we credit or blame Trump for both the young far right movement and the older people's further right and more violent movement?
3: So I think something that happened with Trump is that you had a situation where people were able to have an entire community built around a person so you know when I left libertarianism it was hard uh, that was my friend group my social stuff uh and it you know it was like it took a long time you know it took it I wasn't just like I didn't wake up within and I was like oh I'm not libertarian anymore and I was like oh okay well I have to find new friends I have to find new activities maybe I'll go to less things and um but with Trump what you had was a centered around a single individual and and you look at the younger far-right, I mean, they were not, I mean, would they have been Republicans? Maybe, maybe not. A lot of them now say, you know, if it's not Trump, I'm not voting, I don't care. <laughs> um, but the online community that formed around Trump was one where maybe if you were just going to be anti-Semitic and racist, but like passively, which is not good, right? <laughs> That's not a good thing to be. Um, but, you know, you were just going to like work at the Best Buy and you were like, in your town, 99% white, and you just were like, I'm never going to date anybody who's Black, something like that. You know, um, when you joined this Trump community, I think it allowed or it created a space where people were able to hyperfixate on, on you know, the Jews and, and minorities. And uh, it became part of their personality in a way that maybe it wouldn't have been if Trump had not run. And so I'm not saying it's great to be racist, but passively, but I think, you know, um, it's probably worse to make racism your, your number one personality trait. (laughs) Uh, And it's probably worse to have it be your number one fixation. And uh, it also, you know, can you can you be more racist? Can you be more edgy? I, that could help you get a bigger following, and maybe maybe you get to meet people in the Trump White House now because you've been so edgy on Twitter. <laughs> um, and so yeah, I think I think Trump uh, did did a lot of good stuff for the far right. I mean, if you look at what he said to, about the Proud Boys, you know, stand back and stand by, um, and and his comments after Unite the Right in Charlottesville, you know. It's it all gave it all gave credence to the far right. Made them feel like they were part of of mainstream acceptance.
0: We are speaking with writer Amanda Moore, who posted two incredible articles at The Nation: "Undercover with the New Alt Right," as well as the follow up, "The War Within the Young Republican Party." You can follow Amanda on Twitter at NoTurtleSoup Seventeen. So you also mentioned that Trejo was an election whistleblower and a writer for Big League Politics, a far-right propaganda outlet where he had published a video, quote-unquote, verifying his claims that poll workers in Detroit were trained to lie to voters. While the clip did not actually show this, it did get him mild notoriety in far-right circles and earned the outlet a cease-and-desist letter from Michigan's attorney general. Again, Dana Nassel. From what you experienced, do people like Trejo do they believe what they are saying? Are they true believers, or do they know they're misleading, if not lying to the public, but do not care if that's what it takes to win for some greater cause? That that cause apparently being far-right, verging on, if not being, fascist. Are they true believers, or is this just a political strategy to lie to the public in order to win votes?
3: I think it's both, and I think part of why it's both is that if people get so Hopped up on telling the same lie over and over and thinking about it and trying to think of new ways to prove the same lie that they kind of started to believe it. Um if yeah, they didn't initially. There are definitely people, there's other someone else in that article, uh Nelson, who was very honest. You know, Biden won the election. I mean, that's what he said. He said, Have you ever he's, he's like I talk to people and I say, Have you ever been to a city? <laughs> Have you ever met a college student? Who do you think they're voting for? Um, but people like Treyo, you know i I don't really know if shane uh believes it or not i I think he might um but it's it's harder to say there's something i also think it it i mean i i don't i'm sorry i just you know i i don't think it matters so much i mean i think it matters a little bit but then it gets to a point where it's like um whatever who cares (laughs) you know um I, I think at the top level, you know, like Trump, obviously that that matters a great deal if he really believed it or not, because uh, it's it's a very silly, stupid thing to believe. And he was the president of our country. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think it matters if Shane believes it or not.
0: You, There's something I just don't get. You write that Trejo also uh, wrote for Gavin Wax at Liberty Conservative. In 2017 and 2018, Trejo co-hosted a podcast called Blood, Soil, and Liberty with fellow Liberty Conservative contributor Alex Witteslawski, an outspoken member of the white nationalist hate group Identity Europa. Blood and Soil is a reference to the idea in Nazi Germany that ethnic Germans have a deep and unique connection to the land. Trejo had registered the domain for the podcast just days after the 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, where marchers chanted blood and soil. In November of that year, Trejo and Witteslawski had guest-hosted an episode of Nationalist Review, a far-right podcast. In the two-hour podcast, Trejo and Witteslawski doubled down on their support for Roy Moore, a serial assaulter of teenage girls. Trejo called him a folk hero. Blamed minor- that's, he also blamed uh, minority outreach for the destruction of the Libertarian Party and championed the idea of free market eugenics. I mean, look, I understand it makes sense within the context of the far right, eugenics, racism, blaming the other. That's to be expected. But why support a serial assaulter of teen girls? What, what does that reveal to you about the far right movement?
3: You know, what is very interesting about uh, covering the far right is that I keep tripping over people uh, bringing up allegations. I mean, not, I don't mean this about shame, but just people in this movement. I can't go like a week without somebody telling me, oh, do you know about so and so in high school boys? Do you know about so and so in high school girls? Uh, it seems like there's a lot of maybe looking the other way on that in, in this little world. Um, and so I think it might just be, oh, we all know people who go after high school girls, don't we? Uh, I don't, but I guess on the far right, it's much more common. I've I've been shocked at how many people have approached me to let me know various people are uh, target teenagers.
0: That's just so creepy. Yeah. Oh, so... So Trejo does not think it was the FBI or Antifa, but the police becoming increasingly provocative over three days of protests that culminated in January 6th. Cops provoking and violently, violently protecting Antifa and Black Lives Matter, which nobody can talk about, according to Trejo. And he can't either because he's now a Republican Party election official. Did he tell you, did he explain to you or did anybody explain to you? Why the police, some of whom are definitely members of the far right, would want to provoke uh, the people who were there for the Jan- June, uh, January 6th rally and be violent against protesters prior to and during those events?
3: There was a lot of resistance going on at those events. Um, so there were two rallies leading up, uh, two Stop the Steel rallies at D.C. There was one right after the election in November, and there was another one in December. And I remember December after the rally. You know, we all are out in the middle of the street in front of the uh, local far right watering hole, hanging out. And people are, you know, like high of the cops. Some of the cops were like, "Thank you guys for being here." And I, I mean that this was the same night that somebody got stabbed. <laughs> they were still thanking us for being there. Um, and 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 I would talk to people. I remember talking to one lady, and she was like, "You know, the police." I back the blue. I do. But the police are limited in what they can do because of all these liberal mayors and all these liberal governors. Um and so you could kind of see the turning point or I I could kind of see the turning point at that December rally where it was like we love the police, we hate their bosses. Uh their, their bosses are giving them these directives and and they're telling them to to suppress us. But we we love we do love the individual police officers. Um and so you know, by January 6th, it was obviously different. But, you know, when I was walking to the Capitol on J6, um, there would be crowd Boys coming in the other direction, tear gas down their faces, yelling medical emergency, back up. We'd have to make space for them to walk through. And, and we just kept walking forward. And, I mean, this was not just like an able-bodied, young, fit crowd. It was old ladies with canes. It was little kids. Um, And we just kept marching forward. And at one point, when they started doing the the pepper bombs, it was blowing back at them. And the person next to me was like, yeah, get Antifa, because they thought that they were actually trying to get counter-protesters to back off. Um, So it really kind of depended where you were in the crowd and what your personal background was with the police, your personal relationship with them. what you thought, and then I kind of of think it just took a little bit of time for everybody to get on the same page, where it's like, okay, the D.C. police specifically are our enemy, but probably the other ones are mostly fine.
0: So you mentioned that in July 2021, when you met Alex Nelson for the first time at a cocktail reception during Turning Point USA's Student Action Summit in Tampa, I was standing in line for a glass of wine when Nelson asked me what my vision for America was. To avoid encouraging people, I was always careful not to be more extreme than the people i met so i i deflected and asked what he wanted for the country nelson responded uh like a friendlier nazi germany from people you spoke with is that an accurate depiction of what the young far right wants out of the republican party a friendly nazi party and did you ever figure out what they meant by a friendly nazi party
3: I'm so glad you asked this. This piece was originally 8,000 words, and the version that you have is 4,400. So, obviously, a lot got cut. Um, if you remember years ago, Richard Spencer used to talk about a peaceful ethnic cleansing. Um, and that is obviously not really a thing. And I actually just wrote about this on my Substack. Um, Gavin Wax's Liberty Conservative invited Richard Spencer to speak at a conference, a, a Libertarian conference in 2017. Um, and this was originally in this piece and it got cut. And um, part of what he talked about, you know, Shane asked him, do you think there needs to be violence? And, and Spencer's like, yeah, of course. <laughs> like, the government's gonna have to do violence. This is not a lovey-dovey situation, but we're not gonna do the violence. And so that, you know, peaceful ethnic cleansing, a friendly Nazi Germany, it's the same like kind of concept where it's just like we need to vote or Storm a Capital so that we can have laws that deal with the problem, the problem being, of course, minorities, um, in a way that we don't have to look at or think about. Um, so it's you know, it's not on us. And And that is really like what it means, um, how that is familiar or super different than actual Nazi Germany, who can say, you know, I guess uh, another thing that they're really into is the idea of voluntary repatriation, which is also not a concept that exists, uh, but you can say it. So maybe instead of Auschwitz, we do one-way flights uh, out of the country. But it's, you know, kind of, at the end of the day, going to be effectively the the same concept.
0: So you you mentioned how uh, Nelson showed a lot of glee in planning a genocide, and it was disgusting. How much detail did he give you when discussing genocide? Did he give you the impression this was something he thought about deeply, and not just himself, but he may have thought about it with other people on the far right, and that he felt comfortable discussing it because those that and this is what you were spying at. You were undercover at a Project Veritas meeting. That Did you get a feeling that those who sympathize, uh, those around him at a Project Veritas party, they agreed with his position on genocide?
3: Man, he was having that conversation with me uh, while we were walking across the street. So, you know, we were at whatever hotel okay. the I thing was at on the way to Project Veritas. And there are just civilians, like regular people who are not here for this weird, you know, Republican conference. <laughs> just people on vacation or hanging out. We're in downtown Tampa. And of course, some of them aren't white. And I am just dying inside. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe this guy is just loudly saying, let's beat up all the Jamaicans and Haitians and kick them out of their homes. like we're going to get we're going to get beat up. I mean, like, this is not this is not great. This is humiliating. Um, and as soon as we got to the bar that was hosting the Project Veritas event, I was like, oh, this is, thank God, because nobody here is going to be mad at us. <laughs> like, he's going to say that maybe people won't like it, they'll walk away. Nope, there's not going to be that level of resistance that you get seeing that kind of stuff in the middle of the street. So yeah, I mean, this was definitely not his first time running through this scenario, his whole, his whole concept was New York City should be the capital of America, but It's not Anglo enough. We need more Anglos there, which means we've got to take out the non-Anglos. And yeah, he did not create that idea while he was speaking to me. It's definitely something he had thought about before.
0: Right. And you said this to uh, while Jamaican people were standing right there so they could hear him. But then you mentioned that uh, when when you walked too close to a group that was chanting and marching, a counter-protester group, Nelson pulled me back. Big, bad Nelson ready to beat the crap out of Jamaicans in New York City, but afraid to walk by a little protest in daylight. What does that reveal to you about his fear of protesters, but no problem with confronting Jamaicans who are just walking down the street? What does that say about not just Nelson, but what does that reflect on the larger far-right movement?
3: He's a coward. Many of them are cowards. Um, You know, after... After I was doxxed, he had a little white nationalist recruitment meeting here in D.C., and I went because I am not a coward (laughs) and I confronted him. And it it was so clear to me that me showing up to this publicly advertised event that I could tell was going to happen in the city I live in was just not something he considered. It just because it's not something that he would have done. Um, You know, a peaceful ethnic cleansing for further Nazi Germany. These are situations where somebody else is doing the dirty work uh, while you sit at home. And being in that environment, you know, when I went to Portland, I had a gas mask, I had goggles. I've I've been tear gassed. Pull me once, you know. I I was not coming unprepared. And he was shocked. He was shocked that I owned a gas mask. Um, and it just, you know. It's just this, you know, running on hate and chaos and wanting the world to be a certain way and, and wanting other people to fix your problems for you.
0: Did you ever get the feeling that Nelson was in the far right is nothing more than a con that is causing violence? What do you mean? Well, I mean, if you go back to the 1990s and the Freeman movement and Just Us, I think it was Montana. Uh, they were saying that they were a far right movement and they were trying to become an own, their own sovereign state. And what they found out was it was just a check kiting scheme. That's all it was. Do you think that there is any sense? Do you think that the far right is a, a real I mean, it's, it's a real thing, but do you think it's motivated by profit more than belief?
3: For some people, yes. For some people, no. I um, think in Nelson's particular case, it's motivated by chaos. Uh, and destruction i think he likes that uh people like uh shane i think uh i think i think it's both i think he's both a grifter but i also think he's a real believer uh people like gavin uh, wax i think might be motivated more by grift and by by personal uh benefits you know he's he's very well known <laughs> for instance um so i think it really just depends on the person if you know I, I don't think like the people that i knew were running some kind of uh like profit scheme together um like not one cohesive thing but yeah it is i think it's i think it's both um though i don't think it necessarily matters you know if you're saying all these things and stoking outrage doping fear and who cares what you really believe you know
0: Do you think – because you write about how a representative from one of the organizations was talking about how there's divides within the young Republican national – Fund, uh, while the MAGA, you write, while the MAGA populace uh, might go, uh, might often be the loudest voices from YRNF. They appear to be uh, losing the internal struggle for power, much like within the GOP. The rift over is likely to grow wider and deeper in the lead up to the twenty twenty four election. Can this be so bad for the Republican bar- Party? that we actually may see a second term of Joe Biden as president. Ken, if Joe Biden becomes president, how much of the fault do you think will be the far right?
3: Um, so I knew when Trump came down that escalator in June 2015, that he was our next president. I knew it in my heart, in my soul. <laughs> I And I don't really feel that way now. I don't really feel um, that he'll win. I, you know, it's obviously it's very hard to say what will happen because it's so far out. Um, I think, I think Trump, I don't know if Biden would win in a different circumstance. I, I truly have no idea. But I think that the GOP is not healing. They are not coming together. <laughs> Never Trumpers, many of them are also uh, not so fond of DeSantis, for instance, who's not even doing very well. Uh, and it's, I think it's very alienating. The Trumpers, the MAGA people. When I say like MAGA, I am talking about the specific attitude that embodies people like Gavin Wax. They are mean and they are, they are bullies, and they are determined to get moderates out of the party. Um, I don't really know how the GOP is going to grapple with that. Specifically, something that I think will be an issue uh, is Ukraine. Uh, and and how how a presidential candidate's going to handle that because you have people who are extremely pro Russia uh, who are you know kind of this like loud brash force like Gavin Wax and then you have a lot of people in the Republican party who are uh, pro Ukraine and i think that is going to be maybe one of the biggest dividers. And that's gonna, I mean, that's also traces directly back to Trump, right? Like all the Trump people are super pro-Russia for some reason. Um so yeah, I I don't I don't know how the party gets over this. I don't know how they move on from Trump. I, I think it'll fracture them for a long, long time. And I, you know, if if, if Trump loses by a little, I think that's really bad. <laughs> I don't know how accepted those results will be. Um, yeah, so it's it's hard to say.
0: Yeah, ten million votes last time that wasn't even uh, accepted that well. We've been speaking with writer Amanda Moore, who posted the Nation article "Undercover with the New Alt Right" and a follow up story, "The War with the Young Republic Within the Young Republican Party." You can follow Amanda on Twitter at NoTurtleSoup17. One last question for you, Amanda, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is what we call. The question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write that, as it turns out, the Trumpian wing of the Young Republicans National Fund does not have the same poll within the organization that they have on social media. So through your research, is social media not as indicative of the popularity of Trump or the far right? as we may think it is, as someone who, you know, not myself, but if I was someone who was very concerned about the rise of the far right and very concerned about support for Donald Trump because of social media, how should I interpret that social media presence?
3: I think it matters, but I think it's indicative of the actual party. Um, I think, you know, most people in this country are just like, yeah, I vote. I voted for Trump, and I'll you know I'll vote for whatever Republican, and I'll watch you know twenty minutes of Fox News or CNN or whatever a week. Like someone listening to this is going to be uh, caring more about politics than many other Americans. <laughs> so I think it's important not to lose sight of that. Right, a lot of people don't pay much attention, and they just vote the way that they've always voted, and that's that's it. They move on with their lives. Um so this like fanatical rabid hatred i think it looks more popular online than it is in reality i mean the trans stuff didn't do well in midterms and you know i think that could change with time because obviously the more this is allowed to fester the more these people are allowed to be given a voice within their party uh the more accepted parts of their beliefs will become um And that's on, obviously, that's on the Republican Party to do something about it. I can't do anything about it. Um, But, you know, there's still time. It's not like a lost cause or anything uh, to kind of squash this.
0: Amanda, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show today. These are two very fascinating articles. And as... Uh, we were you were saying earlier that this was actually an eight thousand word piece, and it's now down to forty four hundred. This conversation in no way covered just those uh, at all; those forty four hundred words, or the follow up article. Everybody should go check out your writing at The Nation, Undercover with the New Alt Right, as well as The War Within the Young Republican Party. You can follow Amanda on Twitter at NoTurtleSoup Seventeen. Thank you so much for being on our show, and expect me to be bothering you in your inbox for the rest of your life.
3: Awesome! Thank you so much for having me.
0: All right, take care, Amanda. Bringing okay. you bong hitting journalism since 1996. This is Hell. I love that tagline, but sometimes I'm worried that the list, the guest, is still hearing it. If you learned something about the far right from our conversation with Amanda and its impact on today's young Republicans, show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com/slash This Is Hell every thursday morning at 10 a.m chicago time or you can show your appreciation for a completely listener supported this is hell just by going to this is and clicking on support and we really really need your support Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding at our Welcome to the Hell Hole Facebook group page. And if anybody wants to become a member of the Welcome to the Hell Hole Facebook group page, all you have to do is send me a message via Facebook, and I will send you an invite. Or send us a message via our my own Facebook page or the This is Hell Facebook page. So, Dan, what is this week's question from hell, and how are our listeners responding at
1: Welcome to the Hell Hole? What will you miss most about Western civilization? And our listeners are uh, are very vocal with this one. Yeah, they love this one. I think there was like 50 responses. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, Stefan B. says, questions? (laughs) This one has uh, like some comments on it uh, too. Uh, Nick E., Comments back, are you thinking that it's valuable to be able to pose questions and think about them? Uh, to which Stefan B says, Maybe. I'm <laughs> also thinking that the question is one of the most sophisticated forms of promogulating assumptions. So we went deep on that. Yeah, they did. <laughs> uh, Patricia O says, TV, <laughs> Amy M, Breezewood, Pennsylvania, and the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Generally, I, I don't get that. What the hell is going on in Breezewood? <laughs> I want to know. I'm gonna look into <laughs> that. It sounds fascinating. It does. Uh, uh, Tamara H. says Western civil civilizations misplaced egocentrism. <laughs> uh, Pete V. traffic. <laughs> uh, Jeff Dorchin. Foods, music, art, and fam- film video from all over the world and days. <laughs> the e. H says free public libraries. Wojtek R, Slim Jims, <laughs> the epitome of Western <laughs> civilization. So, uh, yeah. some, seems how, like somehow related to the New Jersey term, uh, Pennsylvania Turnpike, Pennsylvania Turnpike. Must yeah.
0: be. They call it the Slim
1: Jim Turnpike, you know. Yes. <laughs> Uh, Julie M., my collection of single-use plastics. <laughs> Andrew S., bolo ties. I haven't thought of bolo <laughs> ties for a while. <laughs> while. <laughs> Martin S., school children unable to spell it. <laughs> to spell uh, civilization, yes. that is. I think so. <laughs> and uh, Walter B., incessant worrying about Western civilization. The true hallmark of Western civilization, (laughs) to be sure. Marco G., The Wilhelm Scream.
0: The Wilhelm Scream. I love The Wilhelm Scream. I absolutely love it. And you can hear it in so many different movies. It's really great. Look Uh, up The Wilhelm. I just got that. Yeah, it's really great.
1: The actor, uh, what's his first name, Uh, or last name? Wilhelm.
0: Yeah, I can't remember now.
1: Well. Uh, Nick E, premature degeneration when you hit puberty. (laughs) And the last one is from Doug V, the whimper, not the bang.
0: So the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from wins whatever this is how merch they want or you want. Uh, But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. Again, Dan, what's Jeff uh, up to during this week's moment?
1: Jeff is... Flying the dog whistling skies.
0: <laughs> Keeping it real, real deep in debt since nineteen ninety-six, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Become a subscriber to this is hell on Patreon at Patreon.com slash this is hell and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast. Which has a completely unique monologue by me and and has a classic interview that is unavailable anywhere else online. And it streams weekly and is podcast shortly after at the same place. Patreon.com slash This Is Hell This Week on Patreon. It's all about the question from hell that we just, or that I was going to ask Amanda, and I forgot to.
1: Damn it. Damn it.
0: Ugh. My question from hell for Amanda was going to be. What the hell do we got to do to get Nazis to troll us? Because she is constantly trolled by Nazis. And I forgot that was going to be my question from hell because I got caught up in our conversation. Seriously, we need your help, not only because we'll get more listeners and maybe have some more Patreon subscribers, but because we seek validation by us Nazis. Also on Patreon back on June 6th, 2009, a day that will live in infamy. We celebrated the invasion of Europe in World War II by talking about how fascism wasn't defeated in Germany. After all, it just moved to the United States. So we're playing an interview from 14 years ago when our guest accurately predicted the rise of the far right following the election of the first African American to be elected as president of the United States, which shouldn't have been a surprise to any of us because the right, Republicans, conservatives, reactionaries, they're all straight-up racist. Our conversation back then was with award-winning writer David Neuwert, author of The Eliminationist, How Hate Talk Radicalized the American Right. And again, we have President Bill Clinton to thank for that and his dumbass support of the Telecommunications Act of 1996. But the only way you can hear why we want Nazi trolls and a talk that accurately predicted the rise of Nazis is by becoming a Patreon patron at patreon.com slash thisishell. If you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, Now you get a special code word, giving you a $5 discount on all of our merchandise that you can find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support. But you also get access to over 400 Patreon podcasts. That's like four years, five years of additional This Is Hell with each and every one featuring a monologue by me and a classic interview, again, that currently is not available anywhere else online. That's patreon.com slash Hell. Coming up, Jeff Dorchin with the moment of truth. The rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. I think we've actually gone through all of them. And we will be announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell. Or not. Mostly not. Because we don't have anybody booked yet for next week's show. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. This is hell. I know you have Hefe on the line. I know it. Absolutely, sir. So. I know it too. <laughs> Everybody knows it. We're just waiting for that intro.
1: <laughs> you know what to do. That. One more time. The truth. The truth. The moment of truth.
2: The moment of truth. The moment of
0: truth.
2: Dog whistling through the sky. Garbage seems to follow me everywhere. When you wash your shirt with some weird looking cocktail napkin in the pocket and for the next week you find little magenta dreadlocks in different pants pockets and socks, it's the sneaky right-wing libertarian agenda disguised as neutrality and objectivity, and it is an infestation of crawling, nibbling, chittering vermin. I started writing super truth items for this show as a way to comment on the mishmash of half-truths, misleading distortions, and flat-out lies that have become the cultural currency of the steroidally pro-capitalist regressive sovereign citizen movement. This movement by my mapping, has given us such malignancies as anti-union right to work laws, the Clinton deregulation of media trusts, and the Tea Party lunatics, which have bled into diverse policy failures like Obama's refusal to put a public option on health insurance on the table. Uh, usurious credit card interest rates and the golem of securities dicing and debt bundling which joined with lax rules on bank capitalization led directly to the cratering of the global economy in 2008 it's the neoliberal discourse I've been fighting against since Chuck first asked me onto this as hell but I have to admit failure I have failed in the sense that a drowning man fails to swim in the sense that a prophet being burned as a heretic has failed to smoke a pipe or grill a hot dog. I am overwhelmed. The liars are too numerous and duplicitous for me to keep up with anymore. Beware libertarian think tanks, they skew to the right, and many such larvae have hatched out of the nationalist anti-progressive movement that got Q-pilled and Trump-pilled in the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic response. Beware of new think tanks swarming from stagnant breeding ponds, such as the Brownstone Institute, founded and populated by the framers of the Great Barrington Declaration, that screwball screed against the institutions struggling to main to manage a public health crisis after Donald Trump discarded the Obama administration's methodically developed pandemic response playbook. Trump is such an infantile character that he made it his mission to destroy anything with Obama cooties on it. The results of the orange windbags' scorched earth policy toward Obama's fingerprints were catastrophic for the public. The worst COVID case and fatality numbers in the world going into the summer of 2020 were the two countries with the most ignorant, clownish, fascistic chief executives, Brazil under Bolsonaro's misrule and the US under Trump's, and by a long, long way. The CDC, the WHO, and other established and formerly trusted institutions followed the best guidelines they could given how little was understood about the virus. The logic behind the lockdowns was better safe than sorry when a virus spreads so far, so fast, and causes unpredictable symptoms. And they did take seriously the idea that it had been engineered or accidentally released from a lab and finally rejected the idea for lack of evidence, as does most of the medical community who are nevertheless still under attack from overconfident crackpots. And the crackpot faction keeps pushing the created by Fu Manchu in a lab accusation, along with the myriad other inanities they spin like drunken fates in an inanity spinning frenzy. The Barrington Brotherhood, or cult, or whatever pejorative you like, decided after no consideration to take the ape shit approach. They went along with the reactionary segment of the public that went middy over every damn thing that prevented them from carrying on business as usual. Their response was similar to Trump's and echoed his crackpot public statements and their delusional ignorance and know-it-all Dunning-Krugerism. So thanks to these triggered xenophobic sovereignty lunatics, we are left without a public option, with a UK whose economy is mangled from Brexit, with a public sector being drained of funding by the neoliberal thirst of privatization vampires, neo-Nazis and quasi neo-Nazi Confederacy throwbacks banning books, shooting black people, Jews, LGBTQ plusers and other scapegoats, and a planet in the process of being laid waste by corporate war, and other yeah, by corporate and war priorities oh on top of that i was forced to write the following sarcastic letter due to the incident described therein dear southwest airlines i am very pleased to hear my captain aboard flight number 805 from las vegas on la to- <clears throat> from Las Vegas to LAX on August 30th, 2023, come out in favor of a judgment striking down mask mandates. Thanks to the judge who struck down mask mandates, he announced over the intercom and added, it's nice to see all your faces. He didn't show us his face, but it is irrelevant whether or not he would look better in a mask than without free speech and body sovereignty are something equally heroic. I had no idea what ruling he was talking about or if even he himself did but it's the thought that counts neither the government nor any authority has the right to make me wear a mask to prevent the spread of a disease among the public i can be as selfish as i want they're my germs to spread as i please it's unfortunate that this brave aeronaut works for a company that doesn't support his admirable point of view not long after his noble announcement the flight crew demonstrated on orders from the deep state, I'm sure the procedures for donning the oxygen masks that would drop out of the ceiling in the event of a loss of cabin pressure. Look, you can't make me wear a mask Southwest. Nice try. Not only that, but we were told to look at the safety literature in our seatback literature compartments literature. Look at these cartoons. Not only is the female sheeple shown obediently putting on her mask, but in the final paddle, she's even forcing a child to wear one. Literature! Since when is child abuse literature? I'm sure a company like yours Southwest which peddles this kind of child pornography will not hesitate to censure or even fire an outspoken pilot for simply exercising his first amendment right to cast public doubt on the seriousness of a on the seriousness of a pandemic and the efficacy of masks in slowing or preventing its spread. Sure the data shows that covid hospitalizations are spiking again but that's no reason the shirk one's duty to be a selfish plague spreading dick leave our brave selfish patriotic plague spreading dicks alone yeah i had to write that letter and it took me away from doing other things i could have been i could have been watching such in-flight entertainments as are you there god it's me margaret or super pets i'll tell you this is just another way civilization is collapsing. They nickel and dime you till you can't pay attention to the bigger picture. You're too busy plugging up the stab wounds in your own body, and you certainly don't have time to cut off the replenishing heads of the personal sovereignty hydra. It's like being pinched to death by baby crawdads, like being gish galloped by guppies, trampled by a cacophonous chorus of argumentative sea monkeys like death by never-ending paper cuts a million little pinpricks like being bled out a drop a day
0: this has been the moment of truth good day i hate southwest airlines
2: i do too oh my god whatever i don't know
0: why do they have to be so jovial like engaging just fly the damn plane
2: why do they have to be at all and why can't we just have like I don't know why can't you know what I really love is like a bullet train hell yeah you know, a bullet train those sleek cool bullet trains they have in Japan or France or wherever you know whatever wherever well, the they, civilized nations
0: yeah they live in the future dude and if you ever want to see the future just go some go to another western European country or go to a place like Japan you can see the future there the future we will never have
2: Yes, we're all going to be short little people with black black hair. Yeah.
0: All right, let's move <laughs> on from that pretty quickly. Our... Oh well, you
2: know, uh, um, I got it. So the, I've been really pissed off about this whole Labor Day thing because <laughs> in the United States, Labor Day has nothing to do with labor. Mm-mm. It's just it's just the last day of summer. Yeah, and the point and the 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 point was really brought home by many things, but include, uh, like there was an article in the New York Times. Oh, you know, nothing about labor. Like, can you wear white after Labor Day? And then uh, in the New Yorker, they had this cartoon where a bunch of workers are rolling. I don't think they even knew that they were workers. I didn't think they knew what they were doing. It's a bunch of people. It's like little men, like little magic elves rolling up the beach, you know, like vacuuming up all the sand and rolling up the ocean, and there's a guy like taking the seagulls down from the sky and putting them in a bucket. And I'm like, why are they working on Labor Day?
0: <laughs> you know, um, I, today- I, I love the What's fact that? that I love the fact that uh, Memorial Day, which is yes. approximately four weeks before the first day of summer, is the official beginning of summer. Labor Day, which is 3 weeks before the end of summer, is the official end of summer. It's so in line with the American culture of we can't wait for things to start and once they start, we can't wait for them <laughs> to end.
2: Not only that, once they end, we can't wait for the next holiday. <laughs> <know>. the fucking <laughs> Halloween, then <laughs> people were like people were like shy about putting up their Halloween decorations in September, right? And like who cares when you're going to put your Christmas decorations
0: up before Thanksgiving? Before Thanksgiving, and then as soon, as soon as New Year's Day happens, the next day you're back at work. Like, it's over. Holidays are over now. Go! It, it, it's all the ramp up. It's all about sales. It's all about consumerism. It's all disgusting.
2: just. Chuck, I don't know how you feel about this, but I'm never working again.
0: <laughs> Good for you. I
2: refuse. Yeah. I'm not not contributing to this nonsense, this madness.
0: Well, good luck with that, Jeff.
2: <laughs> well, you seem—I know you work hard, but you don't work for the man.
0: No, I don't work for the man. Anymore. You work for the girly. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I do work for the girly. <laughs> All right, Jeffy. Until next time. What? Stay beautiful.
2: Oh, nice of you to say that I'm beautiful.
0: <laughs> Live from land stolen from the Badawatomi people of the Three Fires. This is hell. Listener SLS tagged me on social media to bring this to our attention from an essay titled Grammar of Animacy by Robin Wall Kimmerer from the collection Braiding Sweetgrass Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. Robin writes In Botawatomi, rocks are animate, as are mountains and water and fire and places. Beings that are imbued with spirit, our sacred medicines, our songs, drums, and even stories are all animate. The list of the inanimate seems to be smaller, filled with objects that are made by people. Of an inanimate being, like a table, we say, what is it? And we answer, table it is, or yewe But of apple, we must say, who is that being, and reply, Apple, that being is. English doesn't give us many tools for incorporating respect for animacy. In English, you are either a human or a thing. Our grammar boxes us in by the choice of reducing a non-human being to an it, or it must be gendered inappropriately as a he or a she. Where are our words for the simple existence of another living being? Where is our Yahweh, or being? A language teacher I know explained that grammar is just the way we chart relationships in language, Kimura writes. Maybe it also reflects our relationships with each other. Maybe a grammar of animacy could lead us to whole new ways of living in the world. Other species, a sovereign people, a world with a democracy of species, not a tyranny of one, with moral responsibility to water and wolves, and with a legal system that recognizes the standing of other species. It's all in the pronouns. And now you know. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want that is currently available at thisishell.com. Dan, did we get through all of the answers to this week's question from Hell?
1: We actually got one more. All right. Uh, and it's a good one. All right. What they will miss most about Western civilization is the constipation. <laughs> Who said that? Uh, you know, it's... uh Popped up and now I'm not getting. It, uh, <laughs> I can't can't find it again. If they will uh, shower them all. If they win, but I like the constipation. A There's a
0: lot of constipation in Western yes. civilization. So the people, there are the people. The answers I liked most were Chauncey G saying fries with gravy, uh, Yairo replying to that, but not the cheese curds. Edson C saying some of the music, art, literature, films were pretty good. Jeffrey T saying all the Ionic columns and busts of Socrates. What are you going to miss the most about Western civilization? Zach said the chromatic scale chance, reaping benefits from unequal exchange while weeping about wealth inequality. Uh, Erica X saying that uh, the friends we made along the way, which is a great answer. uh, Tars Animal, uh, the Stockholm Syndrome. Nick E, the uncertainty of whom to tip. Dean T saying Summertime at a baseball game With a warm beer in my lap Or in my hand And a cold hot dog in my lap Uh, Essential The water (laughs) You'll see J.K. Rowling That is spectacular Simpler name please Saying criticizing The western civilization Rock taster All the exceptionalism and Arby's, uh, Evan D. saying free refills, uh, which is really good, uh, fate, uh, uh, Facebook, Kelly H. saying processed food, John T., war autocracy, religious dis- uh, discrimination, oh wait, those are present in Eastern uh, Civilization too. never mind, Laddie saying it's cute, little know-it-all smirk, what is Doug M. going to be missing most about Western Civilization? He writes barbarism, Adam A. says the desperate hand-waving away of naked bigotry is quaint generational provincialism. Also cheap gas. Warren L. said you had civilization. Nicholas E. saying canned bread. Wait, what civilization? Julie M. saying my collection of single-use plastics. Martin S. schoolchildren unable to spell civilization. Patricia O. TV. Uh... Let's see any more that i really liked on here mark marco g the wilhelm scream was great and uh any more uh, let's see andrew s Bolo ties voychek saying slim jims pete T saying traffic there are a lot i really liked in there and i'm not too sure I, i've boiled it down to two dan which one do you like most and Nick, please chime in. Uh, Chance saying reaping benefits from unequal exchange while weeping about wealth inequality. Or Julie M. saying my collection of single-use plastics. Either one of those two really catchy. Or wait, I got one more. Evan D. saying free refills. Any of those three you guys really liked?
1: I lo- love the, uh, the plastics. Single-use no plastics. How
0: about you, Nick?
1: I agree with that one. All it's right, all right. bottles in car. Yeah,
0: exactly. And I've got way too many you know, single-use plastics in my... I every time, but... Yeah. I, I do, too, every time. So, uh,
1: I wanted to say S.L. Smith was, uh, uh, sorry, the, the, constipation. the last name, but...
0: Yeah, yeah. the constipation yeah. response. Very yeah. good. Again, S.L. So, the winner of this week's question from Al is Julie M., for saying the thing that she will be missing the most about Western civilization is my collection of single-use plastics. We will be contacting you post-haste, Julie, so we can get your email address and you can tell us which piece of This Is Hell merchandise you would like, or you can just drop by here during office hours on Wednesday evening, and we can give you whatever you want. Congratulations, Julie. Really appreciate your response. My answer to this week's question from Hell: what will you miss most about Western civilization? Uh, It's our problematic relationship with looting. When it's poor people taking stuff they need to survive because and then when it's bad you know i'm sorry let me start all over it's our problematic problematic relationship with looting when it's poor people taking stuff they need to survive that's seen as bad but it's celebrated in museums and don't forget indiana jones was nothing more than someone who looted antiquities and those movies are not aging well especially in this Era of decolonizing museums. Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell. We have yet to book any guests for next week, so uh, keep checking us out on social media where we will be announcing this next week's guest post haste again. I said that twice in two minutes. Seb Voper will be back doing another Past Inside the Present. We'll have This Week in Rotten History from Ronaldo Magaldi. Jeff Dorchin, as always, will deliver a moment of truth. Uh, and a huge thank you to this week's producers. Thanks to Dan Kugler. Thanks to Nick Mann for uh, shadowing uh, Dan this week. Thanks to Will Ippen. Thanks to Sebastian, Ronaldo, Jeff, to Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry, Theron Humiston, Dan Hill, Pete Valavanis, Just Because. Talk to you tomorrow, Thursday, on Patreon at patreon.com slash when I'll be asking for advice on how we can uh, attract Nazi trolls. And we'll be sharing a 2009 interview with David Nywert, who was the author of The Eliminationist, How Hate Talk Radicalized the American Right. This is how office hours, our weekly meet and greet that's really a drink and think, are happening tonight, Wednesday, beginning around 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. It's supposed to be a beautiful night for drinking beer in the beer garden. So look for me out back or the back door will be open up here. So if you want to come out, come up and check out this is art, you can do that as well. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt.
1: Uh-huh.
2: My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. Uh-huh. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell right.